Welcome to the Miracle Channel podcast. Every week, you'll hear powerful messages from world-renowned pastors that air on Miracle Channel, Canada's 24-7 Christian TV station. And if you want to watch more of their messages anytime you want, check out our online streaming service, Corco Plus. Follow the link in our show notes to create a free account in three simple steps. Today on the podcast, you'll hear a message from Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron is an American actor and evangelist who hosts Takeaways with Kirk Cameron, an inspirational and informative sit-down interview talk show. On the show, Kirk chats with well-informed guests about issues Christians face today, and together they share actionable things each of us can do to, as Kirk says, bring more of heaven on earth. You can watch Takeaways with Kirk Cameron anytime on Corco Plus. Let's dive into the message. Emerson, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, thank you, Kirk. I've been looking forward to this and very excited about uh, your new program. Oh, well, I, I have been looking forward to this conversation. You know, I was in the movie Fireproof. I played Captain Caleb Holt. And, and, and you know, I, I'm starting to think now that if, if I had just read Love and Respect, the movie Fireproof may have been completely unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were commenting how many people look to you now as the guru because you were in that movie. And uh, I thought that was a great comment. And the truth is, I'm just a student now speaking with a professor. I, I'm so, so thankful for the book that you've written and uh, the many books that you've written. I, I want to ask you a question. Many, many marriage experts either come from uh, a home environment where they had great examples from their parents of how to do relationships and marriage, and others not so great. Do you fall into one of those two camps? I do, and that's an intriguing observation. In fact, I spoke to the 12,000 students at Liberty University on this phrase that we've all learned and heard, the wounded healer. And I described myself as that wounded healer. My mom and dad divorced when I was one. Uh, then they remarried each other, but they separated for another five years. My dad attempted to strangle my mother. Uh, I witnessed that, we think, when I was around two and a half. Uh, and that left uh, some really deep uh, wounds. And uh, we were not Christ followers, didn't know the Lord. I eventually was sent to a military school from eighth grade to 12th grade at Missouri Military Academy. A film Billy Graham put out called For Pete's Sake was being shown at the theater. And I went with some cadets and I heard the message that God loved me, that Christ died for me, that I could be forgiven. I was thinking about going to West Point. I'd met with my congressman. The president can make a recommendation. But when I found out Billy Graham went to Wheaton, I pivoted and went to Wheaton, and my freshman year, my mother prayed to receive Christ, my sister who was older prayed to receive Christ, my brother-in-law who's a professor prayed to receive Christ, and my father prayed to receive Christ. Mm. And they changed. Mom began to speak for Christian women's clubs. Dad would drive her around. But that woundedness within me, I think, triggered my desire to help people like my mom and dad. You know, I thought if I could go back now, knowing what I know, and speak to my parents who are in their 30s, uh, I would have a message for them. And that's the message I want to give to other people. I'm burdened for the little boys and girls out there like me and moms and dads who have goodwill but don't know how to do their relationship. There are these honest misunderstandings. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I'm so glad that you're purposing to do that. What a, what a miraculous story of epic proportions, yeah. the way that God saved you and then began to uh, save those in your family. 
So Emerson, you've written a book called Love and Respect uh, that millions of people have read and benefited from. Uh, what inspired you to write that book and why did you call it Love and Respect? Good question. I pastored for 20 years and uh, I stumbled across Ephesians 5.33 one day, which is the summary statement to the greatest treatise, many would say, on marriage in the New Testament. And it's the summation where a husband is commanded to love and a wife is commanded to respect. And uh, I realized no one debated the idea that a husband ought to love his wife, uh, but the idea of respecting a man, I mean, women would say, you know, he hasn't earned it, he doesn't deserve it, I don't feel it, I'm not gonna be a hypocrite, I'm not gonna feed his narcissism, I'm certainly not gonna secretly, you know, somehow enter into the, your agenda about returning to patriarchy, I'm not going to be a doormat, I'm not gonna worship him and kind of bow down to him. But other than these things, Dr. Emerson, I'm really open to hearing. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So we realized though that uh, because I went to military school, issues of honor, you and I know as a man, we, we serve and die for honor. We're motivated by the idea. We respect each other. We don't show each other contempt unless you want to have an enemy. And in fact, one husband said to his wife, I love you so much, I would die for you. She said, oh, Harry, you keep saying that, but you never do. <laughs> you know? But nonetheless, you and I serve for honor. And we're motivated by that. But women weren't feeling the same way. But as I meditated on that Ephesians passage, apart from some of the cultural, social, political issues, I thought, what happens when Sarah feels unloved? And Sarah and I have been married since 1973, and uh, she has a tendency to react in ways that appears disrespectful to me. Very rarely do I doubt that she loves me. I know she loves me. I just don't think she likes me. <laughs> One time she chased me around the house with my love and respect book saying, what would you say to a husband treating his wife the way you're treating me? Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, we have our heated uh, fellowship as well. But I realize that Sarah reacts in these negative ways that appears disrespectful to me. And when I feel disrespected, I end up reacting in ways that appear unloving to her. 85% of those who withdraw in Stonewall is the male. And of course, that, that just crushes the heart of a woman when we disengage like that. So we, and we've asked 7,000 people this question, Kirk, when you're in a conflict with your spouse, do you feel unloved at that moment or disrespected? Get this, 83% of the men say they feel disrespected and 72% of the women say they feel unloved. So we know there's exceptions to this, those statistics show that, but this is statistically significant and that the reliability of that the test has been shown again and again. I have my PhD in family studies, so that kind of research is important to me. But here's the deal. We all need love and respect equally, as I say. But apparently, the felt need during conflict differs. And as I meditated on that, I realized the Lord was probably revealing something to us to encourage us. Because here's what I discovered. I call it the crazy cycle. Without love, Sarah reacts without respect. Without respect, Emerson reacts without love. And without love, she reacts without respect. And without respect, he reacts. And this baby starts to spin, Kirk. And people of goodwill, Sarah and I have goodwill, and we get on the crazy cycle. And what I believe is that we don't understand this dynamic that I'm talking about because she's not trying to be disrespectful and yet men take up offense and he's not trying to be unloving. He'd die for her, but she takes up offense. And so our campaign, Sarah and I, has been to help to decode that crazy cycle because it happens to all of us. And when the issue isn't the issue and you sense the spirit of your spouse deflating, you're probably on the crazy cycle. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I know that there are several cycles that you refer to in your book, but I just want to double click for a minute on, on what you're talking about here. 
You say in your book that love is not enough. And many of us have been programmed to think that, well, if, if, if you would just learn to love her better and she would just learn to love him, it's all about love. God is love. Love one another. Uh, love your enemy, uh, you know, which sometimes our spouse can feel like an enemy. Why do you say love is not enough? Well, it, it's not because love isn't important, but neither Paul nor Peter ever command a wife to agape love a, a, a wife. There's agape love, which is the God-like, unconditional love. Then there's phileo, Philadelphia. You're to phileo your husband in Titus too. And not phileo him, but phileo, but it's not agape. <laughs> That's a key distinction. I think you need to repeat yeah, that. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And then there's eros. And those are the three, agape, phileo, and eros are the three components of marital love. But no wife is commanded to agape love her husband. And I meditated on that, and I realized the Lord put it within the nature of women to nurture. Women love to love. You have to wound her at the level of intimacy to get her to stop loving. So God doesn't command her to do what he created her to do. Peter in 1 Peter 3 says, you win a disobedient husband through your respectful behavior. He walked with the Lord of love for three years and never commands a wife to agape love. So as a biblicist studying the Bible, I realized this is significant. And so the question is, well, isn't love enough? Well, you could say that, but the apostles are saying there must be something that happens in a woman when she feels unloved. She reacts in a way that she thinks is the loving thing to do, but in the man's world, it appears disdainful, contemptuous, belittling, and disrespectful. She doesn't intend that. That's not the goal. And so my mission has been to help men decode that. But also I say to women, if you misrepresent yourself, you're going to be misinterpreted. If at the end of the day, you're not trying to diss him, but he thinks you are, you need to develop a new vocabulary to disarm him that that's not your intent. But in answer to your question, I landed on the love and respect message because that's the summation of the greatest treatise in the New Testament. Paul says a husband must love and a wife must respect. And Peter also said, you win a disobedient husband through respect. They landed squarely on that, and so I did as well. So if a couple is experiencing the chaos of the crazy cycle, you don't respect me, well, you don't love me, and when you start loving me, then I'll start to show you the respect that you deserve, but right now you haven't earned any of my respect. How do they move out of that into the healthier place of the energizing cycle you talk about? Well, the crazy cycle, you know, we've all heard the definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing over and over again with the same ill effects. And so if a couple's been married 10 years and they're in that crazy cycle, and most everybody, people say, you just said in five minutes what described 25 years of my marriage. Very few people differ with this. Uh, there are some exceptions, but overall, uh, everybody gets it. Yeah, that's where we live. Even if she needs respect, he needs love. I can see how that plays out in our relationship. And so if we keep reacting the way that you're talking about and keep blaming the other person for my reaction, then it's just going to keep spinning. So people have to come to a point where they make a decision. And people always ask me, well, who moves first to jump off the crazy cycle? And I say, well, the one who sees himself or herself as the most mature uh, moves first. And of course, <laughs> if we think that our spouse is always reacting in this childish way, then we're conceding to the fact that we see ourselves as the most mature. And I also say, people say, but I don't know if I can do this, Emerson. I said, well, let me say it this way. If you were to get $30 million tax-free for the next six weeks, if, if you never spun on the crazy cycle or got angry at your spouse, would you over the next six weeks, and there'd be a video crew following 24-7 for $30 million untaxed, uh, would you 
spin on the crazy sack. Would you do your part to get off of it? Would you stop being angry? And every the crowds that we, you know, we do our conference. Oh no, yeah, yeah. I said, so here's the point. We can do this. We're just not getting paid enough. That's right. We 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 do it for money, but we wouldn't do it that's for right. God and for our spouse. Well, uh, that, that that's convicting. Now, I know that when we read your book, we study through the, the group study series or we're, we're attend one of your conferences, we'll learn how to do that, how to get out of this crazy cycle into an energizing cycle. Uh, you talk in your book uh, with regard to the question, what women actually want, you've got this acronym, COUPLE, C-O-U-P-L-E. What, what does that stand for? Uh, closeness, openness, understanding, peacemaking, loyalty, and esteem. And when a man is committed, he won't do it perfectly, but uh, oftentimes when the spirit of a wife deflates, if you take that as a checklist, why is she deflating? Why is she upset? Did I send a message to her that I don't want to be close with her? I don't want to be open with her. I don't want to understand her. I don't want to be at peace with her. I don't want to be loyal to her. I don't want to esteem her. And respect or esteem is part and parcel of love. She needs to be honored. Peter's very clear. Honor your wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life. But when a man doesn't do those things, then she's going to deflate. But if a man in good willed, you know, motivation moves toward his wife to do that, or he humbly confesses, I failed to do that, I'm sorry, most every woman I know will soften, will forgive, will let him start again, will appreciate him. She'll even be bragging about him to her women friends. But that's the energizing cycle. And one of the things we say to, to get off that crazy cycle, I think one of the things we need to do is decode, is your wife really trying to diss you? Or is she just crying out for love? And did you say or do something earlier that felt unloving to her, which explains her reaction? She's trying to say to you, I'm feeling unloved. She's not trying to say, I don't respect you. And ladies, when your husband shuts down on you and reacts in a way that feels unloving, did you say or do something prior to that that was disrespectful? Women have photographic memories. They'll say, well, yes, but he should know I didn't mean it. <laughs> he should know I didn't mean it. And so one of the things I encourage people to do is to not personalize on the crazy cycle too quickly. Sarah will react to me, I react, but we realize, you know, we're vulnerable. We're insecure people at times, and we give the benefit of the doubt to each other. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 33 and 34, the husband is concerned about how to please his wife, and the wife is concerned about how to please her husband. And we've got to take that by faith, unless we're married to Hitler's distant cousin, you know, I mean, and there are evil people out there. But it's kind of a sad day when we're married to a person who has basic goodwill, who's basically concerned. They're not getting up early in the morning to storyboard ways to irritate us and annoy us. And, and, but we're taking up offense and we resent them when really they're just defensively, insecurely reacting to something we said or did earlier. And if we're honest about that, we can begin to make a change. And we talk how to get off that. But then you transition to the energizing cycle, which is how do you energize somebody? How do you motivate somebody? Mm. How do you influence them? And there's a fine line between manipulation and motivation. You know, a guy says, I've been right. loving today. Can we have sex? I mean, that's manipulation. But motivation is, I really want to learn how to be close, to be open, to be understanding, to be at peace with you, to be loyal to you. Esteem. You know, my family of origin, I don't know how to do this. I don't know. I don't want to be unloving. I mean, every wife just softens when she hears her husband talk that way. It's just powerful. So you've got an acronym for the ladies. Couples. Now let's flip the script and talk about what you say guys are really looking for from their wives. Um, what are some practical things that she can do to respect the man in her life? The acronym that you have for the guys is CHAIRS. I probably would have went for Lazy Boy Recliner, but that's probably got too many letters in it. 
So <laughs> what, what does chairs stand for? Well, I think it, it's more abstract. We talk about conquest, uh, hierarchy, authority, insight, relationship, shoulder to shoulder. We talk about them in sexuality. And uh, those are abstract. I talk about women have the, you know, the romantic languages, French, Italian, and couple C-O-U-P-L-E, it's just so right. But then when we talk chairs, it's guttural, it's- uh, It's Russian, you know, it's German. Exactly, <laughs> And so instead of trying to uh, unpack that, I think the thing I always begin with, let them read that because I go into the fuller development. And I will say that almost every man who's read chairs says, that's me, that's me, that's who I am. That's who your son will be. And so it doesn't make sense to the female, but I will tell you, when you see a spirit deflate and he withdraws from you, just ask yourself, did I step on his air hose, so to speak, in one of those six areas? But most women ask the first question, Emerson, I have no idea what you mean about even respect. And in psychology, we talk about it as unconditional positive regard toward the spirit of another person. Unconditional positive regard toward the spirit of a person. Unconditional love and unconditional respect. Many people sense intuitively what unconditional love is, and that's right. But unconditional respect is an oxymoron. It's contradiction of terms to them that respect must be earned, respect must be deserved. Yeah. But here's the deal. Unconditional means there's no condition or situation or circumstance that can get me to hate you or show you contempt. God's command to me is to be loving and respectful apart from you. And people get confused. They think that I am the way I am because you caused me to be that way. Yes, they affect us, but they don't cause us to become a contemptuous, hateful person. They don't have that power. That's a choice I make. They can uh, motivate me to want to do that. But at the end of the day, that's my decision. But unconditional, some people get confused about that. And so what we're talking about here with regard to respect is when a woman is upset, can she distinguish the thing that's not respectable that he's done and respectfully communicate to his spirit about that which was not respectable? Mm. Every male leader toward another man, that's how he approaches. He honors the inner man while he confronts those things that aren't honorable. He never shows contempt toward the spirit of the man. Because when you do that, you've got an enemy and you're going to lose his heart. And women have to practice this. They, in one way you do this, I'm not trying to dis, dis you right now. I'm not trying to dishonor you. Help me understand what you did hurt me. You're an honorable man who would die for me if I don't kill you first. But help me say this in a way that you don't just shut down on me. This is unacceptable with me, but help me understand this. You're an honorable man. See, she's going back before. She's, she's confronting the behavior without disapproving the male spirit. And that's an art and a skill that has to be developed. But we talk about respectful attitude coming at his spirit from your demeanor. And when a woman is upset, the University of Washington study that she shows these gestures of contempt, the eyes darken, the face sours, the sigh, the rolling of the head and the eyes, the hand on the hips, the scolding finger, all of these are maternal, but in the male world, male world they are, they are they're mothering, they're disrespectful, they're belittling. And so she ends up misrepresenting herself. So she has to let him know that that's not her mission. Her mission is, I need something from you that only you can meet. And I'm feeling insecure and I need you right now to understand my heart. So how do I say this without offending you? He'll engage that. And I tell women, try it out for a while and see if what I said isn't true. Now, Emerson, I want to talk with you about another critical component of any relationship, communication. Um, you have uh, another book out that is called Before You Hit Send, Preventing Heartache 
and headache. And this explores the challenges that we have in today's digital age where we can communicate things instantaneously at any moment. What is different about this age of communicating in relationships than what we were dealing with before? That's an excellent question. I think part of it is just the community, the village that we had where relationships were important and you had to be guarded about what you said in the village because your reputation was contingent on that. I think now with the social media, we don't have relationships like we used to in the, you know, those agricultural settings. And so our reputation doesn't seem to rest on uh, what it is that we're saying over the internet. And I think that there is some real vitriolic attitudes. People seem to resent so deeply. There um, seems to be a, 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 a hatred even in some quarters. And so this is feeding what I think we all recognize is a serious problem because we're, we're losing what used to be called the civil debate, you know, civility and how we debate issues. Um, there's a shift away from that a little bit. And hopefully we'll return because we'll see the wisdom of the ages. Uh, in your book, you, you, you challenge your readers to think about four things that they should think about before they hit the send button on that text or that email. What are those four things? Is it true? that you're about to say, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And the one that I added is, is it clear? Because people would say, you know, I think what you said is true and kind and maybe necessary, but I have no idea what you just said. What you said, right. <laughs> so I added clarity because it forced me to, am I really clear here? Do people understand what it is I just said to them? And those are the four questions. And if, if we can say yes to that, then hit send. It's not a matter of remaining silent and, and applies to marriage true. Is that which I'm about to say true? So is, am I saying this in a kind way? And am I saying this in a way that's really necessary? Is it really necessary at this point to say this? It may not be. And then have I really said it clearly? It may be clear to me. But those four questions, Kirk, have helped me over the years. This isn't just a book I wrote. I've tried to live this way. And uh, it's disappointing for me to see so many people who have thrown this wisdom to the wind. Why do we have to remind ourselves of something that should be so obvious? Well, that's the question on the table. I think that there's resentment. I think people need to get in tune with what's driving this. This is why Jesus was so clear that every word we speak, we've got to get him count to. This was sobering to me when I came across that passage, that at the end of the day, this isn't the horizontal as much as it is the vertical, that at the end of the day, I've got to give it, and in my life, I've got to give an account for the words that I speak. So there needs to always be a check in my spirit even though somebody may have said something to me that I want to retaliate on, that we're called to a higher standard. But I also believe that if we continue to operate according to these four questions and answers, we will prove to be more persuasive in the long run. We will lose the battle on this conversation, lose the battle there, lose the battle there, but then we'll win the war. I have to ask you, how do you know whether or not what you're about to say is actually necessary. Because I, I can think of times where you're like, this is, is it tr yes, this is true. What I'm about to say is 100% true. I can be very clear in my explaining of what's going on here. And I can say it in a kind way, but is it necessary? How do I determine that? Well, it's an issue of timeliness. I mean, you know, again, we say to marital couples, maybe you're both fatigued, so it's, it's not necessary to say it now. Talk about it when you're not so tired and in, okay. in the morning. But if, if in a social setting, you know, again, I think if we say what's true and we're humble about the fact that we don't have a corner of the truth, but here's what we understand it, the facts to be, and we are lovingly and, re and respectful and kind, and we're questioning ourselves, is it really necessary or not? 
and you don't really know if it is or not, it is clear, you say it lovingly, respectfully, it's truthful, then yeah, jump into it, go proceed with it. Emerson, before we wrap our time up together, tell me about this book that you have that is helping mothers and sons. The respect message, as I said earlier, mothers and wives want to do what God wants them to do. You know, they want to do what's right in their marriage. They want to do what's right in the family. And what happened with the respect message, women begin to realize, wow, this, this is really working in the heart of my husband. His spirit is softening. He's moving toward me. He's connecting. And then they had this light bulb. I've got three sons. I wonder, I wonder if I apply this respect message to my boys, whether or not it will work. Well, Kirk, hundreds, if not thousands of mothers began to write me and tell me what happened. And uh, the Mother-Son book is really the result of all these testimonies, story after story after story, mm. of how mothers used a few vocabulary words that were different. Women love to love. They're going to say, love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. And they need to keep doing that. But every so often, say, I really respect this about you. What you did here is very honorable. A few vocabulary words. In fact, a Focus on the Family uh, did an interview of me on this, and then they distributed these things for five-minute clips for about 10 different sessions, and 100,000 women signed up for this. So there's a tremendous desire in mommy's hearts to do the best that they can in relationship to their sons. And this is a niche that I discovered that I want every mother to know about it. At least just look at it. You don't have to buy into it right away. but And don't use it as a formula on your son to get him to obey you. See it as a need that he has as a need from you that only you as a mother can, can fulfill. And it does revolve around what I call the respect effect. Emerson, I have loved this conversation and I have such respect for you. Oh, I love you, Thank I love you. you, I love you. Thank you for your, your wise words today. We have another amazing podcast recommendation for you. If you're craving a podcast that tackles current issues facing Canada today, then you're going to love Grey Matter, brought to you by Miracle Channel. Hosted by the talented litigator-turned-podcaster Leighton Grey, this show brings you conversations with global leaders that challenge narrow worldviews and explore taboo topics. The Grey Matter podcast encourages listeners to step outside the box and engage in respectful dialogue all to broaden your perspective. Join in on the podcast and dare to question the status quo. Search, follow, and listen to the Gray Matter podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're joined now by Mylan and Kay Yurkovich. Mylan is an ordained minister and a counselor, and Kay is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Together, they wrote the acclaimed book, How We Love. Thank you guys so much for joining me today on Takeaways. Well, it's great to be us. with you. Thank you. So I'm fascinated by uh, the book that you've written and really what you're focusing on. And it, many people have heard about uh, the five love languages and people have seen the Myers-Briggs personality uh, analysis and Enneagrams and things like that. But what you talk about is something that's really well researched and you talk about early family experiences and you've given it a name or it is known by attachment theory. Tell us what that is. Go ahead. All right. Attachment theory is a, about 70 years of research on what happens when um, mom and babies connect and go throughout the lifespan. And if you have a lot of memories of comfort and you have a lot of memories where a parent was able to show um, 
feelings and entertain your feelings, then you're going to have what we would call a secure attachment. Mm. Uh, but for many of us, um, we don't have any perfect parents because it's not a perfect world. Mm -hmm. And so attachment theory is just the study of how people connect and, and how they manage stress mm. and how that impacts them through a lifespan. And when they're stressed, Kirk, uh, do they go to people for comfort mm -hmm. or do they go to non-relational means to provide comfort for themselves? That's right, coping mechanisms and that can as, be As well as all the addictions, or... Kirk, you know, yeah. that people turn to to make the difficult feelings go yeah. so away. How, how do you manage difficult emotions mm -hmm. is a lot of what they're looking at. And that's what your book is, is based on. And I'm highly interested in this because uh, my wife and I have a lot at stake. We've got a lot of skin in the game. We've got six kids. We've got 30 years under our belt. I, right. don't, I wanna cross the finish line strong yeah. like you are. You've been married now for how many years? 49. Yeah. 49 years, mm -hmm. that's fantastic. Hey, that means it's working. It it's is, working. Keep, it's keep working. Keep what you're doing. Now, tell us why you chose attachment theory as the basis for the book that you wrote. Mm. We we're struggling ourselves and at the 15 year mark in our marriage, even though I was a pastor and we were seeking to apply all the biblical principles we could, we didn't understand why we had a reaction between the two of us that caused us to feel uncomfortable and not do well. And it was a sticking point in our marriage. We discovered and Kate was introduced to attachment research in her training and we realized that it was answering a question, uh, why we were struggling in our relationship. Yeah, it's actually an answer to prayer. It really was. We really asked the Lord to help us understand that. When I look back now, I can say we didn't really know what was broken. Right. And so how do you fix something when you don't understand the root? And when I started to read attachment theory in the different styles, I was like, wait, this describes the root of my core complaints about him mm -hmm. and vice versa. Do you think that this looking back at early family experiences, has uh, a biblical basis to it, or at least you can tie it to scripture, like maybe something like generational sin or things like that? That's a great question. And you know, what's interesting is when we use that word generational sin, we ask, well, what is that? And it can simply be something that's neglected, Kirk. Uh, like, I don't, I don't know how to hug my child. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to talk to my child. I don't know how to sing to my child. And so what happens is that the child grows up without a relational experience. Mm. So it's not as though it's necessarily overt sin. It's more of sins of omission in mm. many cases. While there is overt mm. sin, granted, these are often cases where the parents just didn't know better. Yeah. And so yeah. we are, and here's the other thing, many of these imprints are before we have verbal language in the pre-verbal years, zero to 18, two, 18 months, two years. So what happens is, is that we have no retrievable memory about that experience, but it puts into our right brain an implicit memory which says, I'm comfortable in a relationship, I wanna go to mm. you when I'm stressed, or I wanna run away from you when I'm stressed. And that's an implicit body memory, more than an explicit thing that I can recall. What are some examples of things that may have happened to us in the past that inform how we behave today? Well, I'll use myself as an example. Um, when I was growing up, I know my parents loved me, but neither one of them knew how to really entertain emotions. If I got uh, 
sad, my dad said, you better stop crying or I'm gonna give you something to cry about. Mm. And my mom just got very anxious. And so I learned early on, feelings are not something that go well. If you just don't show feelings, everybody seems a lot happier. And mm. now it's not a conscious choice on my part. You know, I learned very early to not cry, um, to keep things to myself. And when I was upset, I, I didn't learn to go to people. I learned to go to things, or I, I had a motto of, I'm fine and I'll take care of it myself. Mm. And that wasn't a conscious choice. It was a result of experiences that um, occurred in my family. Lack uh, of development, maybe. It was a say. lack of development. And then I grew up in a place where I was afraid. I had a lot of anxiety as a child because I had an explosive mm -hmm. parent. And when things got quiet at my house, I knew a storm was coming. Or there had been a big explosion and there was a storm, a quietness for days yeah. afterwards. Well, Kay's an introverted avoider, so she doesn't talk a lot. You know, she's more quiet. And if she was quiet or distant, I would start to get very agitated on the inside. And so I'd start to overly pursue her and ask her, are you all right? Are you all right? Is everything okay? Are you fine. sure you're okay? I'm fine. fine. Are you I'm sure always you're fine. I'm asking no, these questions. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> and so it set up this pursuer-distancer relationship, and mm. that was irritating to both of us. So... Then you get married. How do these early life experiences affect the way that we love one another in marriage? Well, we love one another poorly if we don't understand these truths. Uh, the divorce rate outside the church and inside the church is atrocious uh, because we really don't understand these types of interactions and these reactions between the two of us. Marriage is a great exposer because I'm with mm. you all the time. And yeah. so I can be great by myself. I'm, I'm, I'm a great guy all by myself. I crack myself up with my own <laughs> jokes and I don't bug me. But when I get into a relationship with Kay, I start to feel what I described earlier. Yeah, these attachment wounds really bloom, especially in primary relationships. That's right. And they'll bloom with your kids. Your kids can provoke some of these reactions from you as well. Anxiety and stress is not something that we look forward to, but you talk about how anxiety can actually be a benefit in a relationship. How so? Well, it actually wasn't a, be a benefit because it caused me to over-pursue her and to literally push her further away because she's going, ew, he's too needy. Mm. And then I would say she was too distant. And so that was our complaint toward one another. Well, I would say stress was helpful in this way. It was the exposure. It was the exposure. So when we have those bad feelings, go ahead. Well, when you have the bad feelings, you know, you don't necessarily know what to do with them, but God really answered our prayer. Like we knew something was wrong, but mm -hmm. we didn't know how to fix it. Mm -hmm. And we had applied biblical principles. We, we really tried to do whatever the Bible said and... What we found was that God really answered our prayer in, in sending us this research because it explained the root of where we were, where we were struggling and why we were struggling. It was the root of the bad fruit. Mm. Yes, it was. You talk about different love styles in your book, and I can't wait to get into these. What does an avoider look like? Uh, how do they get that way? And what really gets under their skin? Well, I'll answer that because I was the avoider. You were the avoider. 
I've grown out of that style, but that's definitely where I spent the first 15 years of our marriage and as a parent. And the avoider comes from a home where there, it's more about task and mastery and there's little comfort, there's little emotional connection, there's no deep conversation. And so the avoider learns to be independent, self-sufficient. They're more interested in tasks than when someone's emotional or needy, they just don't know what to do because nobody was able to do something for them in that place. So they, they don't offer comfort, they don't receive comfort well. And what will really get under the skin of an avoider is someone who is needy and crying or emotional or angry and upset and they just don't know what to do. Yeah. And so their spouse feels like, you know, you're, you're stonewalling me or you're, you're not helping me out here. And the truth is they don't have enough experience of connection to even know what they're missing. And so they, they're confused by what people want and often have a spouse who complains, you know, my husband doesn't really need me or my wife doesn't really seem to connect with me in any way that's emotional. And they yeah. don't realize that that's really a root foundation of how they grew up. There's another style that you call a pleaser. Um, how are they different and how might people become pleasers? Well, they're very similar to the avoider in that they are not in touch with their feelings. They do not like conflict or any kind of confrontation of any mm. type. Mm -hmm. They typically are your soft serve uh, ice cream people where they wanna make it very nice and easy. And so really, I wasn't very honest, A, with myself, or B, with K. Uh, I would say I was doing fine as well. Were you a pleaser? I was. And I was, but I was basically afraid inside to, you know, make the waters ripple. I was afraid to cause any kind of dissension. And I had a weak level of anger, and I had a hard time saying no, you know, no, the inability to say no, because I want to make you happy. So there is a lot of disingenuineness. Uh, I didn't know myself well on the inside. And um, as a result, it was, it, it caused me to be anxious around her because I needed more attention to settle that anxiety. I don't any longer when I realized it was all inside of me. If you're a vacillator, what does that mean? Uh, do, do they generally get upset in a different way? You know, vacillators usually come from homes where there's inconsistent connection, and so they're often disappointed and waiting for time and attention from a parent. So dating is a great period for the vacillator because there's a lot of connection, there's a lot of intensity, there's a lot of, um, you know, togetherness. But vacillators are really um, upset when they have to wait. They become upset. They waited as kids for time and attention, and so when, you know, you have kids and you have jobs and they're waiting for time and attention. Um, they're on a quest for that kind of constant, intense connection they missed as kids. They want, you want you there all the time making contact. And so they're disappointed a lot because that isn't real life. You can't make that much connection. But they don't realize that they're, the wound is underneath. So avoiders manage stress by detaching. Pleasers manage it by being nice. Fast leaders protest. They're the protesters. So they'll tell you what's wrong, what you need to do, and how you need to change it, not realizing that there's a wound inside of abandonment driving that need for intense connection. What about a controller? Does a controller have a different experience in their childhood? 
Controllers and victims come from a home that we call chaotic or disorganized. And the chaotic disorganized home is a place where the child is stuck in a place where there is fright without any solutions. So the, the home is dangerous. There is addiction here. There is abuse. There is neglect. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a home where many children grow up and the church is full of people mm -hmm. that come to Christ, but this is their history. And so what happens with this individual is they will tend to gravitate toward one or, or two or the other uh, propensities. One is to be highly controlling of their environment mm. because they want predictability. They want no surprises. They don't want anything to startle them or be dangerous to them. So they control their world very rigidly. The victim, on the other hand, has learned to tolerate the intolerable their whole life because they want to stay under the radar and try and dodge all the mm -hmm. things that are going on in the home. And so when they walk into adulthood, they remain or retain that role of the victim where they are easily taken advantage of. They don't have an adult voice. These types of people often also dissociate when they're under stress or when they're in a, a, a place where they're frightened. They'll basically disconnect from the experience mm -hmm. and not, really not be present. They look like they're there, but they're really not. And so these are some of the things that we encounter with people that have had severe backgrounds. Wow, this is, this is just fascinating. We've talked about the avoider, we've talked about the pleaser, the vacillator, now the controller and the victim. Uh, what is the secure connector? Mm -hmm. The secure connector is one of those fortunate people who had parents who really knew how to emotionally connect they were good at comfort, they were good at listening. So they, they made their child feel safe and secure and seen. And they were able to adapt to different stages and ages. So that person grows into adulthood with a lot of great skills. They're good listeners, they know how to be close, but they know how to give you space. Um, they are very good at um, helping uh, see when someone needs comfort or when someone needs um, attention, but they're not afraid to give you some um, room to be yourself. They're just uh, good at helping people grow in a way that really helps them later on in their life. They manage stress well. So the secure connector is sort of the goal. It's like where we're going right. um, to heal from these wounds and our sanctification journey was very different. I had to learn to know what I felt, have uh, awareness of feelings, and move towards him and allow myself to need him, he had to learn to separate and not follow me around and ask me how I was all the time. So I had to learn to be okay by myself. Yeah. That's right. Is it possible to have more than one style in the way we love one another? You know, it, it is possible. Um, we find people from traumatic homes relate almost to all of these. And these are all coping mechanisms, how we handle a lack of emotional connection. So um, when, you know, the, the traumatized people say, well, I, they probably tried it all. We just say, start with the thing you do the most in the relationship you most want to change. Um, but I was definitely an avoider with him, a bit more of a pleaser um, with my friends. He's a pleaser all pretty much with everyone and everybody. Was. Was. Good point. So once we 
identify, hey, I think I understand now why I'm reacting the way that I am in this relationship, the way I'm coping with stress in an unhealthy way. How then do we begin to move toward that secure connector style? Well, for the avoider, they really have to learn what they feel. They have to, I needed a feeling word list. I could not just come up with a feeling. I had to look at a list of words and say, oh, maybe it's this one. I actually prayed for God to give me my tears back. Pleasers need to learn to separate, be, be able to be angry, be able to say no. Vacillators need to learn to get sad instead of mad, integrate good and bad. You know, it's, you're either all good or you're all bad. Um, and they need to learn that every day is both good and bad and that the reactivity and the disappointment is... Um, bigger than it needs to be. It's bigger because of their history. We carry all of our birthdays inside of us and those mm -hmm. experiences from our entire life are still inside of us. And empathy is a very important place for the controller and the victim. Yeah, they'll go. smile when telling you a really painful story. Mm -hmm. They'll joke about it and say, oh yeah, well, I, it, it, I survived, it was, it's fine now. And they're just very cut off people with trauma are often very cut off from the reality of their childhood. Right. So the comfort circle, which is the last part of our book, is the solution for healing and growing. Right. It has th four biblical positions. One, to be self-aware and describe your inner feelings. Like God does, he describes his emotions from Genesis to Revelation. Then to speak the truth and love one to another. Mm -hmm then to learn to listen and ask more questions about what does that mean? What else do you to feel? To be curious instead of defensive. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then lastly, to comfort one another, which the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, to learn to then provide comfort for whatever the experience of the speaker is. And we learn to listen to each other and have great conversations. And it was something we had to learn to do because we didn't learn it in our early childhoods. Mm -hmm. So if I wanna go back and visit wounds and trauma, how do I do that in a healthy way so that I'm not constantly living in the past, constantly identifying with my wounded, traumatized child, and then using that to manipulate people? You know, we don't look back to blame. Most parents do the best they can. Um, we look back to explain. And once you understand a wound, mm. then you have the ability, when you really see what the injury is, then you have a clear diagnosis. You know, someone who wants to change and grow is going to use that information to really change. Uh, the victim or the person who acts like, well, poor me, uses the information to continue to wallow in their yeah. wounds. And that's never the goal. That's not what Christ wants. He wants us to grow towards maturity and towards um, looking more like, loving more effectively. We don't understand the New Testament unless we understand the Old Testament. So God has, got a, God has got a history and the New Testament wouldn't make any sense if we didn't understand that history. So to have an autobiographical sketch of yourself, to understand all of the impactful times in my life for good and for bad is really important to have this autobiographical sketch so I can know why I do what I do. Yeah. I really like what you're saying and I love knowing that you're interpreting all of this through a biblical lens because it would be really easy for people to go and say, well, this is the story of what happened to you and because you were adopted, or that's why you've got these attachment issues and abandonment issues and therefore 
you're justified in how you feel and the things that you're saying and treating people, but you're saying, no, 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 no. Let's go back and remember that God's working all things together for good for those who love him. He's the author of your story. And this is all heading toward victory and uh, health and character and faith. And we're not going to use the past to complain, but maybe to explain and to, and, change. and to change. Can you give an example of a great action step, a good takeaway that would begin to send us moving in the right direction? Yes, I can. We ask a question in the first chapter of our book. Do you have a memory of comfort during your childhood where a parent saw you were upset, they came to you, they asked you what you felt, they gave you an opportunity to explore and put words to what was inside of you, and you can say you left that experience feeling relief. If you have a lot of those kinds of memories, then you're gonna connect people to a place I can go to get comfort and help. If you don't have those kind of memories, which many people don't, you're not going to seek out a person when you're stressed and you're not okay. Mm. You're gonna find other ways to cope that don't, don't need a personal touch which ignores your spouse. Right. Wow. So if, if as a kid, there was nobody I could go to for comfort, I just went to my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or I went to the TV or to my video games, right. or I went to something that was uh, addictive, that can follow through into my marriage. You will do Absolutely. that as an adult. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we become very good at the things we practice, and if we're practicing them from childhood, we That's become right. experts in That's our marriage. That's exactly right. Train up point. a child in the way which he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. That's great. I love that. Where can people find more information about your work? They can go to howwelove.com, the name of our book, howwelove.com, and find out all about their attachment style. They can take a quiz, and they can find out about everything we said today there. This is great. I, I feel a little bit more like a secure connector after having talked with you. I th we'll see if my wife confirms this when I, when I get home. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast to hear more messages from encouraging speakers that air on Miracle Channel and Corco. Rate this podcast and write a review if you haven't already. And share this message so others can be encouraged by this teaching too. We hope you were inspired by today's message. God bless.